This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Joseph Merrick, who was known as the Elephant Man, suffered from Proteus Syndrome, a rare disorder that causes abnormal and disproportionate growth of the skeleton, skin, adipose tissue, and central nervous system. Arcule is developing a treatment for Proteus Syndrome and other overgrowth disorders. We spoke to Brian Schwartz, Chief Medical Officer of Arcule, about its potential treatment for Proteus Syndrome, how it works, and why it may have implications in a number of other indications, including several forms of cancer. Brian, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. We're going to talk about arcule kinase inhibitors and their potentials as treatments in rare diseases. Let's start with Proteus syndrome. What is it? How rare is it? How does it manifest itself? And how does it progress? The Proteus syndrome is actually a relatively old disease. It was first described um, in the as an elephant man was one of the worst possible cases, um, and many people are aware of it from the from the play. But basically, the research in this ultra rare disease, approximately. 200 cases have been described in the literature, and um, and as you know, diseases that are often really very rare, they're often underrepresented. But anyway, the disease itself has morphed as our understanding of genetics has emerged. Initially, it was part of a overgrowth syndrome group of diseases which had a certain genotype, a certain phenotype. So patients had a certain type of skin lesion, muscular lesion, bony overgrowth, and then a, uh, some CNS disorders. About less than 10 years ago, the group at the NIH discovered that uh, Proteus syndrome was caused by a single point mutation in the AKT1 gene. And this is actually quite interesting because it is not a germline mutation, it's an acquired somatic mutation in utero, and that the people are, most patients are actually born 100% normal. Unfortunately, by the age of two, these little nests of cells with the AKT1 mutation start then to grow at a much greater rate then the body's growing. So, for example, if there was a little nest on someone's left forearm, the left forearm would grow uncontrolled 
relative to all the other patient's bones. The other thing about the disease is it's very heterogeneous. So there's no real two patients exactly the same. It all depends where these nests of abnormal cells harboring the AKT mutation reside in the body. Um, unfortunately, because there's no treatment or you don't really know where these growths are going to occur, uh, some patients have very severe disease, which results, unfortunately, in early death for a lot of, for about 25% of these patients. And um, other patients would need, for example, if their legs grow uh, uncontrollably or some muscles grow uncontrollably, often require amputations or bony manipulations and multiple surgeries before they, they, they reach puberty. Um, that's pretty much about the disease itself. If, if you do have an, an amputation... You're very lucky... Uh, I'm sorry. If you do have an amputation does, and you remove that cluster of cells, does that end the disease? That ends the disease in that area. Unfortunately, most patients have the disease in multiple areas. So, for example, our clinical trial patients, some of them have had, let's say, a left, uh, a left leg amputated, but the disease also grows on their right finger or whatever. But you're correct. If you remove that area, basically um, th th there's no more growth in that area. You, you talked about AKT, but how well understood is the biology of this disease? Right now, actually really well, well understood. Um, you know, if we, they've done, the NIH have done an amazing job around understanding the biology in terms of that they've taken multiple biopsies and evaluated multiple lesions from these patients and they, and, and that's where they basically have found these nests of uncontrolled, um, cell growth. The only thing that is still yet to be determined is that what actually triggers the growth because some of these um, patients will have very quick and massive growth. Other patients will have slower growth and the growth is maximized until the end of puberty. So most of the growth occurs while the patients are actually growing and then once they reach after puberty, there's a sort of slowing of growth. So there must be some other trigger. The other thing that uh, the biology that's understood is that a lot of the growth or the abnormal muscle and fat growth occurs on pressure points. So there must be an additional trigger in addition to the AKT1 mutation. The last thing I want to say is um, the NIH have done... Um, a autopsy, unfortunately, a young lady who passed away, and they found and they looked for throughout her body where there were AKT mutant cells, and they found that there were AKT mutant cells obviously in the areas which uncontrolled growth, but in a couple of other areas as well where there wasn't uncontrolled growth as well. So we know there must be another trigger as well, and that's the only part of the puzzle that yet, yet to be determined.
What exactly is AKT's function in the body? The AKT is, it's, it's basically um, a, a part of the gene. Its function is it regulates primarily growth. So most of the function related to AKT signaling is, is related to growth and proliferation of cells. So in other words, what's also interesting is if you engineer in um, AKT into a growing embryo, they're unable to be, uh, it's unable to be formed and developed. So it's an essential, um, requirement. It's primarily for signaling for proliferation and growth. Not surprisingly, given AKT's role in, in growth, it, it's implicated in a number of cancers. What happens in those cases, and, and how does Proteus syndrome differ from cancer? So you're 100% correct. Uh, AKT1 has also been found to be oncogenic. AKT is divided up into three different isoforms. Isof AKT1, AKT2, and AKT3. The one we're talking about now is AKT1, which is found in Proteus, and it's also found uh, in cancer. So the AKT1 gene has been described as an oncogene in cancer. It occurs in 1% to 2% of all cancers, more prevalent in gynecological malignancies and some other malignancies, which is actually quite interesting because it's also the tumors which occur more commonly in the Proteus syndrome patients are the tumors where AKT um, is detected in cancer cells. So what happens is your uh, a normal cell would um, have a, a number of different oncogenic changes. You get uncontrolled growth and morphological changes of a tissue cell, and that could become cancer. You inhibit the signaling of AKT, and you can slow down the cancer's growth. The difference between cancer and Proteus syndrome is that Proteus syndrome is a normal cell. It's not an, un it's not an abnormal cell that has an uncontrolled growth signal with it. It's basically a normal fibroblast, and it doesn't change its morphology. So if you look at the Proteus cells under a microscope, they look normal. It's just they cause more uh, growth in that area. Your lead drug, uh, Miracertab, is in development to treat a, a number of cancers, but it's also being pursued as a potential treatment for Proteus syndrome. This is, uh, there's a study being conducted by the National Institutes of Health right now. How did you come to look at this as a potential therapy for Proteus syndrome? So basically it was a little bit of serendipity. The NIH, the head of the NIH Genetic Institute, Dr. Les Bicicker, when he discovered the AKT gene in Proteus syndrome, he approached a number of companies to look for an AKT inhibitor to see if it was possible to modify the disease. So he approached us at Arcul. Together with him and his lab, we started to evaluate cells from patients with Proteus syndrome and their sensitivity to the drug and found that the drug was able to slow down 
in terms of its cell turnover, but also the signaling was inhibited with the drug. Unfortunately, he was not able to develop a uh, animal model of the disease because, as I mentioned earlier, the growth is primarily during puberty, and in mice where you're able to engineer in mutations, the puberty duration is much shorter. So we were able to get areas, um, but not areas that mimic Proteus syndrome. So he was unable to get an in vivo model. So together we suggested is let's start a more like a phase zero trial. Let's take small amounts of drug, you know, one-twelfth the dose we were administering to cancer patients, and we were luckier at that point in time we had administered it to a couple, uh, almost 100 cancer patients and had found that the drug, uh, a safe dose, and also effective in a number of different mutations. So we took that small dose. We took patients that with Proteus syndrome who had biopsyable lesions, and we treated them with the drug. We took uh, biopsies before treatment and then on treatment, and we were able to show in five out of the six patients the predetermined reduction in signaling uh, in those lesions. So we were actually quite impressed. We, we actually designed the study to have three or four dose escalation uh, steps, but really at dose escalation one, we were able to achieve the biological dose that we wanted to take forward in this disease. And what exactly is the drug doing? The drug is, so AKT is, um, it's, it's also part of a signaling cascade, the PR3K AKT mTOR signaling cascade, which then would signal to the cell to grow. So what we do is we bind to the AK, to AKT, it's, it's a kinase inhibitor, so it binds allosterically to the, to the uh, intracellular uh, part of AKT, and it blocks its ability to signal. So it would go into the cell, bind to AKT, so when the signal would come to grow or to, to uh, uh, activate the different kinases, it would block it and, and therefore inhibit growth. And is the expectation that this would simply arrest overgrowth or would it have any ability to reverse the state at all? Uh, uh, there, there were two schools of thought. So the concept was is that these kids, we don't know when these areas are going to start growing rapidly. So the concept was to try and treat really early on at the lowest possible dose, and that was the part one of his study. So the thinking from the NIH is you want to give the lowest possible dose that will arrest signal because you'd have to keep these kids on drug for 18 years, and being a new drug, um, you you know, it'll take a long time to make sure it's safe and solid, so you wanted to start at a lower dose. We've actually been quite lucky in that, not lucky for the patient, but lucky in that we've been able to admin, we, we've been able to administer the drug on a compassionate use basis to a patient with both cancer as well as Proteus disease at much higher doses. 
And we've been able to, dis- uh, to demonstrate at the cancer dose that we're able to reverse some of the disease at very high doses. But the plan forward initially would be, you know, to start out in younger children and really arrest the disease because it's a long-term sequelae from the disease. You know, once a big bone or uh, a big tumor has been, has, has emerged, the only way you can rectify it is with aggressive surgery or just leave it as B. So the goal would be to start treatment as early as possible and, and prevent the um, increased growth from occurring. What's the clinical path forward? Clinical path forward now is we are planning the next phase of development. We continue to offer the drug on a compassionate use basis to very sick and very uh, severe patients so that we can learn a little bit more about the disease. Because the disease is so rare, those patients wouldn't normally qualify for a trial. And then together with the NIH, we are finalizing the phase two development in, in Proteus syndrome. Hopefully we will have a trial ready open um, by the end of the summer, early fall at the NIH. One of the lucky things for us with having a phenomenal partner at the NIH is they have at least, um, you know, they have a book of 60 patients where they follow the natural history of the disease, and they have at least 20 patients that could potentially be offered this drug um, at, at relatively early ages. So we're just fine-tuning the trial, the, the study design. We're fine-tuning the endpoints. The challenge for us in the trial right now, why it's really not up and running, is almost every patient has a slightly different presentation. So it's very difficult to have a single endpoint to measure in each patient. And once the, the protocol is done, agreed with the agencies, we hope to start that shortly. Proteus syndrome is not the only rare condition that involves overgrowth. Does this drug have the potential to treat other rare conditions as well? In parallel to Proteus syndrome. So we believe you can only, and we've done this together with the NIH, in Proteus syndrome you have to use an AKT inhibitor because in the same studies we did with our drug, inhibiting downstream with other inhibitors didn't work. It has to be at the AKT level. However, there are overgrowth syndromes for which PR3K mutations have been described, exactly the same way in which I I spoke about Proteus syndrome. These patients have a satellite of cells with a PR3K mutation um, and have a, a progressive course of their overgrowth disease. We've shown in preclinical studies that we're able to also inhibit those patients' cell signaling. So we believe we're able to, we would work in the PR3K activating mutation patients as well as Proteus syndrome. The PR3K group of syndromes is called PROS or PR3K overgrowth spectrum of diseases. And as a company, we've started looking at those as well in our own company study. We are almost completed accrual for the first batch and should have data on that by the end of the year.
Brian Schwartz, Chief Medical Officer of Arcool. Brian, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.